The show must go on. I wonder what that phrase conjures up in your mind. Maybe that of, of the theater. It's often used in that setting, right? When actors or plays encounter various difficulties and challenges. Uh, someone gets sick, you have to have a, a stand-in for them. Uh, you, you lose a prop or something breaks and yet the show, it, it just must keep going on. The show must go on. Well, what, what about the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ? Last week when we studied Acts chapter 15 verses 1 to 21, the, the mission in a certain sense came to a standstill. There, there was a crisis that occurred in, in the church in Antioch. These Gentiles had been coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some men from Judea came down to this church and they troubled the church. They said, unless you are circumcised, unless you keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. This created a, a crisis in the church. And so Paul and Barnabas vigorously debated there in the church in Antioch that no, no, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You don't have to add your works to the work of the Lord Jesus to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to become a Jew to be saved and a part of the company of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that church was so troubled, they reached out to the church in Jerusalem, the apostles there, and they asked for wisdom and counsel. The mission of Jesus in the book of Acts has come to something of a standstill. You remember, the book of Acts is the ministry of Jesus that he intends to carry his witness, his message of salvation from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What do we do when we encounter crisis? A crisis like a debate that rages in a church? A crisis like a division that rages? Must the mission keep going on? That's what our, our passage teaches us this morning. That the, message, that, that the mission must keep going on. It must press through debates, press through divisions, press through difficulties. As we find some people unreceptive to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, as we look at God's words together this morning, I pray and ask that we would be encouraged, challenged to persevere even through difficulty. Persevere in strengthening God's churches. Persevere in proclaiming God's goodness and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friend, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to consider something that I've already said, that, that we don't add our work to the work of Jesus Christ. This is so crucial for understanding Christianity. Perhaps you've turned up here this morning and, and you feel like, I'm not right with the Lord. And I've, I've got to get right with the Lord. Maybe I can go to that place. And they can tell me about how to get right. What, what do I need to do to get right with the Lord? Well, friend, there's good news. Because everything that needs to be done has already been done by Jesus Christ. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that God has done everything we need for salvation in His Son. He sent His Son to live the life of perfect obedience that we have not lived. The life of perfect righteousness. Jesus was sinless. We are sinful. We know that we've rebelled against God. And yet God in love sent His Son to live, to live that life and to die the death and to be paid the penalty that our sins deserve and be raised from the grave. Friend, what you need to do is simply believe that Jesus has accomplished everything for you. This needs to be clear in your mind. Clear in the mind of every Christian this morning as we think about some implications from God's Word. Because we're going to see that an embrace of salvation in Jesus Christ, believing that He lived for you and died for you and was raised for you, 
and that you simply need to believe upon His work and turn away from your sins. This is crucial to understand because we are saved by grace and we continue on in grace and grace challenges us and calls us to live lives of sanctification, holiness unto God, to love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. God's Word does call us to live in certain ways. We need to recognize with great clarity in obedience to God's commands, we're, we're obeying God's commands. That's not earning us favor or salvation with God. Jesus has already done that. This needs to be clear as we press ahead in our study in the book of Acts. Because we're going to see the council of Jerusalem having made a decision about this matter. Remember, they sent up this question to the church in Jerusalem about, look, do we need to be circumcised to be saved? Do we need to be circumcised to be a part of the people of God? Do we need to keep the law of Moses? Well, the council is going to lay some requirements upon Gentile Christians. There's going to be some ways in which they need to walk in sanctification, but we need to understand that that is not earning them salvation. It's them walking in the path of sanctification, being set apart for God and furthering His mission. Brothers and sisters, this council in Jerusalem, as we thought about last week, they came to a decision, but we haven't seen them hand it down yet. So that's what we're going to see together. We're going to see the letter that they send back to this church in Antioch who was troubled. They're going to send a letter back they're going to give them some guidance. And then we're also going to see the story of Acts continue. We're going to see an encounter with Paul and Barnabas. And we're going to meet a new figure in the book of Acts named Timothy. So there are three points that I want to make from God's Word that you see this morning. I hope you'll see in God's Word itself. Number one, an embrace of salvation by grace alone leads to a strong church who, number one, pursues sanctification and sensitivity. I'll explain what I mean by that when we get to it. The church pursues sanctification and sensitivity. Number two, the church perseveres through strife and splits, or spats and splits if you want. And number three, church prepares for service and sacrifice. And this is true for not just the church corporately, but for Christians individually. This is what I want us to see together from God's word this morning. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35. This is where we see that letter handed down to the church in Antioch. The decision of the Jerusalem council is revealed. And here we see that we as Christians are to pursue sanctification and sensitivity. Follow along as I read verses 22 to 35 now. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these you will do well. Farewell. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. 
And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas were made in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Well, these verses, verses 22 to 35, they occur in two movements. First, the letter is drafted. We see that in verses 22 to 29. And then the letter is delivered. We see that in verses 30 to 35. We see the letters drafting there in verses 22 to 29. There's a a greetings there in verse 23. And notice that the council is writing and they're telling this church in Antioch, hey, remember those guys who came to you, who turned up, who said they were from us? Look, we didn't give them instructions to say that. They're clearly distancing themselves from those men who came down. And they're also drawing near to Paul and Barnabas. Did you see that? Our beloved Barnabas and Paul. They're showing the church that, look, we agree with Barnabas and Paul who were contending for grace alone when they were there in Antioch, when this crisis emerged there. We're with Paul and Barnabas. Even before they get to like the content of their letter, they're making plain that we're with Paul and Barnabas. We support them. And they're also saying, right, that we are sending independent messengers. We're sending Judas and Silas, and they can confirm what you're about to read in the letter. And that's important, right? Given that men had just turned up to that church in Antioch, not authorized to do so, and started preaching and teaching something. And so they're saying, these guys, Judas and Silas, they are authorized from us to deliver this message. So so you know that they have our full support. That's really important to clarify in that situation where people are just kind of turning up to church and teaching false doctrine. And these guys, they're going to speak for us. They're authorized to do this. And notice... That even before they kind of get to the decision there in verse 28, they say the decision we've come to, it's actually the decision of the Holy Spirit. We agree with it, but it's the decision of the Holy Spirit. Now, how could they they make that conclusion? Think about this. Remember last week they they were debating. Peter stood up and talked about how God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Remember, there's Jewish people and then Gentiles are just everybody else, every other ethnicity. So Peter was saying, God appeared to me. In a dream, right? In a vision of that sheet that came down. Saw that earlier in the book of Acts. And God the Holy Spirit said, they're clean. Gentiles are clean. You need to share the gospel with them. They're a part of God's people. Bring them in, Peter. That's, that's one way in which the Holy Spirit has testified to the truth of the council, the decision they were going to make. And then there was Paul and Barnabas who talked about how God had performed signs and wonders. God was making his will known as he was divinely acting to save Gentiles. And then James, he came in with the closing argument, Right? The Holy Spirit has spoken through the scriptures. And so James quoted from Amos chapter 9. And he proved that the Gentiles were always going to be included in the people of God. It was just a matter of time for God to work that out in the course of salvation history. That's how the the council can say that, yes, this was the Holy Spirit's decision. We've already seen it in scripture. We've seen it through the work that God has already done. And we are agreeing with the work of the Holy Spirit. And then they get to the, the, the decision of the church. But we'll notice that just before that, that they say that this decision that they're about to lay down, the requirements they're about to lay down, it's not burdensome. And the church is going to receive it with rejoicing. So we know that they too receive these requirements that are not burdensome. Brothers and sisters, some things in God's word, commands that he gives us, they're not burdensome. They're for our good and they're for our rejoicing. So, so what is it? What are the requirements? Let's unpack these requirements there in verse 29. I'm summarizing them by saying pursue sanctification and sensitivity. Look at verse 29. This is what they're asking them to do. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. 
If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, if you remember our study from last week, or if you just look up to verses 20 and 21, this is a basic restatement of what James said to the council in the midst of those debates. James is saying to these Gentile Christians, and the council is saying to these Gentile Christians that you don't have to become a Jew. You you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to adhere to the finer points of the law of Moses in order to be saved. But you can't remain a pagan. That's what James is saying through these requirements. You can't go to the pagan worship festivals where these things are practiced. We, we know that right from what has been sacrificed to idols. James is clearly calling out a worship context. And in fact, the, the blood the, the priest would sometimes drink in those pagan worship uh, ceremonies. Or they it would make a particular food with that. And of course, they would strangle the animals instead of uh, sacrificing them in a different manner because they thought that the animals struggling in that particular way would excite and please the gods. And then there's that issue of sexual morality that's there as well. At the pagan temples in the Greco-Roman world, there would be cult prostitutes present. And that would all be part of worshiping those little g false gods. And so James is saying, the council is saying with this decision, you, you have to be sanctified. You have to be set apart. Sanctification is just a large word for being set apart. You have to be sanctified, set apart from those pagan worship practices. You can't go back to the temple. You don't have to remain, you don't have to become a Jew, but you can't go worship at those pagan temples. Now, these matters that we find here, they're also actually addressed in the law of Moses. So, for example, you, you could read through Leviticus chapters 17 and 18 later today, and you would find each of these issues there in the law of Moses. So, so how do we think about that? Is James just asking him to, to adhere to four simple things in the law of Moses? Well, I, I don't think so. I think what James is, is telling them to do is that, on the one hand, while the law is useless for salvation, it's useful for sanctification. The, the law, it's a guard to warn us of sin. So worshiping idols is a sin. And so by, by adhering to this, right, the Gentiles are going to be prevented, guarded from sinning against God. The law is a guard to warn against sin. But it's also a guide to direct us in the paths of righteous living. Right? The law, uh, though we, we don't keep it as it's been enumerated in the Old Covenant, because Jesus has transformed and deepened our understanding of the law, there are moral principles on the law that guide us in the paths of righteous living. So, for example, uh, sexual morality, right? That is a violation of the seventh commandment. It is against God's law. And so being chaste and being sexually moral, faithful to God's design, is, is adhering to the law in that sense. It's a guide. It's walking in that path of righteousness. But the law is also supremely a guardian, as Paul calls it in Galatians. It's a tutor. It's a teacher. It teaches us that we can't keep the law. As we look at those 613 commands given in the Old Testament law, we find that we are failing time and time and time again. It was only Jesus who personally, perfectly, and perpetually kept the law in obedience to God. That's why the law is a guardian, a a tutor to lead us and teach us that we need the Lord Jesus Christ and that He's the only suitable Savior for us. So the law is useful to us in our sanctification, in our holiness, and following the Lord. And James and the council are also encouraging these Gentile believers in Antioch to be sensitive with their, brother, with their brother's consciences. If, if you look up to verse uh, 20 and 21, you'll see that James talks about how, um, how the law is, is read 
every synagogue in, in every Sabbath, on every Sabbath, in every synagogue. Right? In other words, there are Jews everywhere these Gentiles are, and they're hearing the law read over and over and over again, and they're hearing these violations. And, and brothers, if they see you going to those pagan temples, their consciences are going to be very troubled. It's going to be difficult for them to gather around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ when you're turning up to the temples of false gods. So James is also urging sensitivity with their brothers' consciences, uh, not to make them sear their consciences in order to have fellowship with you. And many of you are probably wondering, but, but doesn't Paul talk about eating meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapters 8 to 10? Doesn't he say it's actually okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10? In fact, that is what he says. Paul says it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But Paul also says you actually can't go to their temples. You, you can't worship there. You can go to the marketplace and buy the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and you can serve it in your home. But, but you can't go and worship at pagan temples. Paul also says in that same context, be sensitive with your brother's conscience there. Right? If he's got a problem with meat sacrificed to idols, don't talk to him about it. Don't tell him, you know, I went down to the market today and I got meat bought from uh, the, this following idol. That's going to sear his conscience. Don't, don't endanger your fellowship in that way. And Paul also says to those with sensitive consciences, look, if you have trouble eating meat sacrificed to idols, don't ask your brother where he got it from. Don't ask him if he got this from uh, the, the marketplace where meat has been sold because it's been sacrificed to idols. So there's sensitivity and consciences going in, in both directions there. And what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to 10 is perfectly consistent with the requirements that James is laying down here. So the, the letter is drafted. It's interesting, isn't it, that we get the letter, we get to read the letter before the church in Antioch does. But notice the letter is delivered there in verse 30. It's read with rejoicing. And the letter is duplicated by word of mouth. And I just want to point, I'm a preacher, so I've got to point out verse 32 to you. Right? You see there where uh, they strengthen the brothers with many words. Some translations put it this way, with a long message. Others with a lengthy message. Another translation with a long speech. Another translation with a long and cheering speech. Um, I, I hope that that's how you think about sermons here at, at ABC. They're a long and cheering speech. Um, anyway, Paul and Barnabas, they go on teaching and preaching there in verse 35. And, and I want to just pull out three applications. I'll press on three more applications from this pursuing sanctification and sensitivity. Number one, we've already prayed about this. Praise the Lord. Um, abstain from all forms of idolatry. Right? We should obviously abstain from the false gods of formal religion. Uh, so, so, for example, I mean, you might find yourself in, in that situation someday. Um, I, I had a, friend, a Muslim friend who invited me to come and speak at his mosque during the month of Ramadan. Uh, they were holding an interfaith dialogue on the subject of loving your neighbors. So it was me, uh, a uh, so conservative evangelical, Baptist preacher. It was a liberal Jew, a liberal Roman Catholic, a Muslim community organizer, and then the imam, the imam of the mosque. Uh, so we were at this event together for Ramadan. A number of brothers from the church came with me. And we went and uh, I, I preached from Luke chapter 10 on Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what it means to love your neighbors, to live like Jesus did. So I preached the gospel to, to all these Muslims sitting around there. Uh, but then in the evening, what they were going to do next was celebrate uh, by, by breaking the fast, by eating. Well, the brothers and I from this church, we, we decided to leave because that would be an act of worship for them. And we don't want to participate in, in that act of worship. So we, we left and, and didn't participate in the rest of the evening. 
Um, you, you might encounter events like that in your life where you need to abstain from engaging in the worship of false gods. But we also have um, false gods of informal religion. We, we prayed about some of them this morning. There are the, the false gods and the idolatry of science. Right? Does, does science have the final say? Does science give the final command? Or does the final command come from Scripture? Well, there's the, the false god of wealth, of work, of comfort, of politics, of education. Um, I mean, ask yourself. So these, these Gentile Christians right, had to distinguish themselves from their, their fellow pagans, or from their fellow Gentiles. They had to live different lives. I mean, what would it look like for you to have a different life, Christian? What would it look like for you to have a different life than a, a friend or family member or, or co-worker who's an unbeliever? So, so maybe we don't worship the, the false god of career by working ungodly hours. We recognize that God has other responsibilities. He's called upon us to, to fellowship with his people or perhaps to disciple your wife and children. Maybe you need to not stay at the office so late and not worship that false god of career. Um, what, what about uh, youth sports? I, I, what about how do you engage with youth sports differently than your unbelieving family members and friends? All right, so the, the laws, we're, we're a swim team family. So we're not going to turn up at the pool on Sunday morning to praise our kids. We're going to turn up with God's people and praise the Lord. Uh, that might be true if you're a, a soccer family or a basketball family or a track family. Well, whatever it is, your praise first belongs to the Lord on the Lord's day. Right? How do you distinguish yourself from unbelieving friends and, and family members when you engage in these various areas of your life? Who gets your worship first? God or, or, or the world, or the activities of the world? You know, are we serious about our sanctification? How, how are our lives different? God often uses as a ground an opportunity for the gospel. So, so we need to be careful to abstain from the false gods of informal religion and various forms of idolatry. Here's, here's application number two. Abstain from sexual immorality. It's right there in the text, isn't it? Right? We should abstain from sexual immorality. Our culture is constantly calling us to worship at the altar of sexual immorality. And we must say no. The scriptures teach us that marriage, marriage is a single exclusive covenant union between one man and one woman. It's intended to be lifelong. And it's the only context for sexual intimacy. Any form of sexual expression outside of marriage is immoral, sinful, and offensive to God. And friends, brothers and sisters, the world will tell you that the scriptures, the Bible's constraints on sexual expression are burdensome. But the world is lying to you. Uh, they know for themselves just how heavy and burdensome sexual morality really is, even if they won't admit it out loud. Sexual immorality leaves men and women broken. It leaves them broken mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And sometimes it even leaves men and women broken physically as they use their bodies in ways that are unnatural to the Lord's design. Sexual immorality certainly leaves relationships broken in its wake. Brothers and sisters, there is forgiveness in Christ for our sexual morality. Let's be honest. Many of us here, maybe all of us here, are sexual sinners in one way or another. And we need the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So flee to Christ for forgiveness. And let us not go on sinning so that grace may abound. By no means, in view of our forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, let us abstain from the temporary and the fleeting moments of sexual morality. And remember, 
that we have a loving Savior and a lasting inheritance. Number three, another application. Keying in on being sensitive to the consciences of our brothers and sisters. Deal gently with each other's consciences. That's application number three. Deal gently with each other's consciences. If these last two years have shown us anything, they've shown us that Christians are going to make different decisions about a number of gray areas in life. Right? Living through the, the coronavirus, people are going to make different decisions here and there. One Christian is going to be firmly convinced about this, another Christian is going to be firmly convinced about that. Well, we, we need to be gentle with one another in our discussions, certainly. We need to be generous. We need to believe the best about one another. That we're each wrestling with the scriptures and trying to come to settled conclusions that are based upon God's word. And honestly, we just need to bear up sometimes when another brother or sister is going to make a different decision than we do. They're our brother and sister in the Lord. We don't depart from them. We draw near to them. Can't let our fellowship be inhibited by kind of gray areas and different decisions that we're going to make. We need to remember our unity in Christ and draw near to one another in Christ. We have to pursue sanctification and sensitivity. And, and given that we do need to be gentle, aiming toward unity, that's what makes the next section of our text so surprising and shocking, frankly. We have to persevere through strife and splits. Read verses uh, 36 to 41. This is point number two. Persevere through strife and splits. Beginning there in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now this is, in some sense, if you're just reading straight through the book of Acts, this is something that is, is pretty shocking, I think. Right? We've just had this unanimous agreement from the council about how the mission of the Lord Jesus is to be carried forward, that we proclaim the news that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And yet here are the, the book's two most prominent missionaries breaking up. I mean, think back through some of their history, right? Paul, he's saved miraculously by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has difficulty getting into the church. Like, it, it's, it's clear that in Acts, that Paul is trying to join the church and they're not having it. And so Barnabas has to come along as an encourager and say, no, no, guys, he's really converted. He's not a persecutor. He's not trying to kill Christians anymore. He's really converted and saved. Barnabas is bringing him into the church. And then later on in the book of Acts, Barnabas goes on to work in Antioch. And he sees that the church is growing. He recognizes more teachers are needed. And so what is it? More teachers are needed. So, so what does he do? He says, I'm going to call Paul. And Paul comes in and gives him help. All right, so they labor there, strengthening the church in Antioch day by day. And then suddenly, as they're worshiping and fasting and praying, the Holy Spirit tells that church, you need to set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work of the ministry. So here they are called together by the Holy Spirit to go on a missionary journey together. And then they go on that journey and they're persecuted and they're pushed out of town. And Paul, even in one city, is left 
He's been stoned and left for dead. I mean, they've gone to war for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ together. They face difficulty, and those kinds of difficulties, they, they squish you together with a brother or sister in the Lord. Right? So, so they are, are joining it. Not only that, they've seen people converted in their ministry. It's, you know, adversity draws you together, and so does the advance of the gospel. So they've seen people converted, and they've made disciples. That's got to encourage them in their work together. Do you see what's going on here, Paul? Yeah, do you see what's going on here, Barnabas? And, and they're rejoicing in the Lord, undoubtedly. And then there's that trial in Antioch, the beginning of chapter 15. Right? Paul and Barnabas together are vigorously debating and defending the gospel. That, again, draws them together. And so the council has happened. The decision has been handed down. And now, now they split. It, it, it's shocking. You know, if, if you're here this morning, you're not a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons that we think the scriptures are the true word of God. Right? Luke, he is faithfully and honestly recounting history. If you're trying to make up a religion, you don't bring up these blots and blemishes on the life of the church, right? You don't make this plain. Hey, we've got our problems. We're sinners and people split and break apart. You don't, you don't try to do that. You try to smooth everything over if you are making up a religion. But if you're not making up a religion, if you're just being honest and truthful and faithful recounting what has happened in the life of the church, this is the kind of account that you get. You get our honest warts, warts and all, about the history of the church. Well, we see here that this split, it begins by Paul wanting to go on another missionary journey. And, and we see that Barnabas, uh, he wanted to take with him John called Mark. Mark there is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So a prominent man. Um, and, and the idea here in verse 37, when it says that Barnabas wanted, the idea is actually that Barnabas, he had made up his mind. He had determined that John Mark was going to go along. And, and actually, equally strongly, you see there in verse 38, Paul thought best, more literally, is Paul thought it not appropriate. Paul thought it not proper. Uh, it was not right, actually, to bring along someone who had deserted them in the course of their last missionary journey. So here you have these two men very decided on their positions. And this tears them apart. It tears them apart. They divide over John Mark. Now, Luke, he doesn't put his finger on the scale to let us know who was right and who was wrong. I mean, I've had some really fun conversations with a number of you throughout this week. Okay, if you had to decide, if you had to decide who was right and who was wrong, who, who bore the majority of the rightness and the majority of the wrongness, who would you decide? That, that was a fun conversation. But Luke doesn't ultimately tell us, right? He doesn't say Paul was right. He doesn't ultimately say Barnabas was right. He just keeps telling the story. He lets it unfold. He doesn't make it clear it was right and wrong. You know, you know, maybe Barnabas wanted to encourage John Mark. Maybe he thought, Paul, we've really got to bring Mark along. I know that he failed last time, but he needs encouragement. He's only going to get strong if we strengthen him in the process of this journey. We've got to bring him along. And there's Paul saying, no, Barnabas, the mission, the mission is too important. We can't risk somebody just leaving us aside and having to think about his welfare when we need to keep going and preaching the gospel. Who knows what was right? Who knows who was right? But here's what we do see. Barnabas and Mark, they go and minister in Cyprus. Paul and Silas, they go to Syria and Cilicia. Notice this. They both remain committed to the work. Even though they have this sharp disagreement, they clearly understand that they have to persevere in proclaiming Jesus Christ. 
And this, it, it begins Paul's second missionary campaign. But we, we see from this that we need to keep going when we encounter splits and squabbles and spats. Now, I, I think that there are roughly three kinds of splits. You can roughly break them into three groups. There's a sinful split, a sincere split, and a silly split. Sincere, uh, uh, sinful, sincere, and silly. So you get a, a sinful split, right, when somebody is clearly sinning or in sin. So think of a, a Christian, maybe a part of our church family, who's addicted to gambling. And they decide, they're confronted in their sin, you need to give up gambling. It's, it's destroying your life and your soul and your family. You need to give it up. But maybe that brother decides, you know, I, I, I can't give it up and I don't want to give it up. And so he splits, leaves the church. Right? That's clearly a sinful split. And then there are, are sincere well, let me just say, if a sinful split takes place, uh, we, we need to pray for their repentance. But then there's a sincere split. Maybe there's a, a sincere disagreement over what the Word of God says. So, so take uh, baptism, for example, right? We, as a, a Baptist church, believe that Jesus said and teaches that disciples alone are to be baptized. Well, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they sincerely believe that the Word of God teaches that you're to baptize infants. We just sincerely disagree over what the Word of God teaches. And so that's why we have different kinds of churches and different kinds of denominations. That's a sincere split. And since it's, it's so you know, connected to what the Word of God says and so connected to the very nature of the church, we, we just we have to part ways. We, we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We want to pray for their faithfulness. But you know, we have to keep going about the work of the mission. But there's also sincere splits, I think, over, over matters of wisdom. Uh, people coming to different conclusions and decisions on, on gray areas. And so they, they feel like, you know, I, I've got to move on. Uh, maybe one of, that, one of those uh, areas is the, the qualifications of Mark. Maybe this is a, a wisdom issue that Barnabas and Paul are wrestling through. Is he really qualified to go on a missionary journey? Is he really going to be able to keep up? Uh, is he really going to receive the encouragement he needs and, and be a profitable missionary? Maybe that's where they were divided. At the end of the day, when a sincere split takes place, oh, we want to pray for our brother or sister's faithfulness. Um, and, and, and sincere splits, of course, can include sin too. I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they're sinners. Maybe one of them sinned in the process of this. That can happen. That doesn't seem to be at the, necessarily the heart of their split, but, but that can happen as well. And then there's the, the silly split, uh, which, you know, are kind of immature, right? People might um, part over preferences and not principles. Uh, you know, maybe music is, is one, uh, programs in uh, the life of the church, maybe a church has people of different age or life stage that you feel more comfortable with. You know, so, so people part over these preferences. And, you know, church is a voluntary organization. Uh, you can't make people stay. That would be weird and cult-like. We're not going to do that here. So, you know, if people split over these issues, you know what we do? We say, we love you, we are going to miss you, and we are going to pray for your flourishing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, praise God, they're going to another sheepfold. We want them to grow and flourish in the Lord. These kinds of things happen. And yet there's, there's searing pain in the midst of it, isn't there? Splits are not easy. This is not what Paul and Barnabas wanted at all. They wanted the other one to agree with them, right? And then move on with the mission together. I, I can imagine Paul going through the course of his journey, thinking to himself, I really wish Barnabas were here right now. I mean, the work is so hard. I could really use some encouragement. You know, can't you imagine Paul? So these, these splits, they, they can ache on for some time. Barnabas, can't you imagine Barnabas saying, I really wish Paul were here right now. The people are hard-hearted 
And Paul, by God's grace, is a bold preacher, and the Lord seems to use him to break hearts. We could really use Paul right now. I imagine for both of these brothers, it's, it's been difficult. And brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that if we have expectations that life and ministry in a local church are going to be just kind of perfectly smooth, we're going to be disappointed. We're a group of sinners. We're going to get on each other's nerves. We're going to have sharp disagreements from time to time. We want to pray and labor for unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. But, but sometimes that's going to happen. Sometimes people will leave over a sharp disagreement. But there is hope. There is also hope for reconciliation. Uh, that, that's what happened with Mark and Paul. So in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we read this. Just a, a wonderfully sweet verse. And remember, in 2 Timothy, Paul is probably in prison. He's probably going to die very soon. And um, he's alone. So this is what he says in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, where we're seeing some of the reconciliation between he and Mark. He says this, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me. In these last two words. He's very useful to me for ministry. It's astounding, right? That Paul previously thought we can't take this guy on a ministry, missionary journey. And now suddenly the Lord has been pleased to, to reconcile their relationship in some way. That Mark is useful to Paul for ministry. Praise the Lord that he brought about that reconciliation in, in Paul's lifetime. And we should have hope that there would be such reconciliations in, in our lifetimes, whenever we encounter them. But, but if not, we should know that we'll all be reconciled in glory. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine uh, two weeks ago about this. Right? There are some splits that are just really hard. I, I wish it didn't go that way. And he just encouraged me, the Lord will repay it all in glory. He'll repay it all in glory. And so we, we look forward to that day. Even if we don't reconcile here, we will in glory. And that's, that's good, wonderful news. Now, th there's another thing that we need to keep seeing here, right? Paul and Barnabas, they keep going. And we need to keep going, even when it's hard. The key to remember is that God is still working, even in the midst of disagreements. The, the strange fact of this text is that Jesus actually multiplies the mission. Right? You, you no longer have one missionary team, but you've got two. Right? Paul and Barnabas, they, they split and, and they go off and they minister the gospel in separate places. Now, we, we cannot use this text as an excuse for us to split over everything and just say, hey, I'm going to go multiply Jesus' ministry over here. That's not, that's not how it works. This is, in God's mysterious providence, what he was pleased to do. But that's what he does. He multiplies the ministry and the gospel goes out. And these men remain committed to the work. So brothers and sisters, we need to persevere. The work is too important. The time is too short. And the lost are in too much danger. They need to be told that there is a Savior that can rescue them from hell. And that they ought to repent and believe and trust in Him and find peace with God. Yes, we need to persevere even through strife and splits. But we also, we also need to prepare for service and sacrifice. This is what we see in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. Uh, follow along as I read those verses for us. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. 
he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. One of the things I, I love about uh, this is some of kind of the irony that we get, right, from the decision that's been made in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Yet, here's what we see, right? Uh, Paul, he, he goes, he collects Timothy, he, um, he, uh, he circumcises him, uh, and then they continue on in, in the mission. It's, it's, it's really strange, isn't it, uh, that, that they continue on in this way. Who, who is Timothy? And why does he need to be circumcised? Well, Paul tells us right there in, in the, in the text, or sorry, Luke tells us right there in the text that Timothy is a Jewish mother, which makes him a Jew kind of from birth, but he also has a Greek father. And it, it, we have, kind of have to guess at this, but it seems like his Greek father probably prevented him from being circumcised in the course of his life. But he has, he has a, 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 an attractive kind of uh, makeup for Paul, the kind of missionary work that Paul wants to do. Right, when Paul goes to a new town, he goes and preaches the gospel, he turns up first to the synagogue, he wants to minister to the Jews, he wants to tell them that the Messiah, that the Lord Jesus Christ has come, the Savior of sinners has come. And then sometimes, as it often happens, Paul gets kicked out of the synagogue, and then he goes and he ministers to Gentiles, mostly Greeks. So Timothy has this wonderful makeup that is, is attractive for the kind of mission that Paul himself wants to pursue. Um, but, but notice, the very first thing we're told about Timothy is not that he's a Jew and a Greek, but that he's a disciple. I mean, don't you want that to be the very first thing that people know about you? That you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. This should be our ambition, our desire. Uh, that people first know about us, that we are disciples, students, learners of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, um, Timothy's also well spoken of here. And Timothy, we see he's been prepared for service. He's been prepared for service by his mom, his believing mother. So, so sisters, let me just show you right here in the text that you can prepare your children to serve the Lord Jesus. Um, maybe you have children now, or maybe you will have children in the future, Lord willing, if that's God's providence for you. But notice how intimately connected you can be in preparing your children to be servants of the Lord Jesus. And, and even here, Eunice, who we know from, um, from first Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Eunice, Timothy's mother, she was part of a a mixed marriage, as it were, right? She was a believer. Her husband appears to not have been a believer. So, so sisters in that circumstance can still have a sanctifying influence in the lives of their children. And Paul tells us, as he's writing 2 Timothy, that Timothy has been taught in the Scriptures from a very early age. He's well acquainted with them. He's prepared for it. So, so sisters, let me encourage you. And, and children, uh, girls in our congregation, young women, let me encourage you to be learning memorizing, knowing the scriptures so that you can prepare, the Lord gives you children, them for service unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, young women, children, let me encourage you to memorize scripture. And if you don't know where to begin, go ask your mom and your dad. Uh, their memories are a little older, so you can actually help them memorize scripture. Uh, you can be a great asset to them in helping them memorize scripture and you learning scripture in the process as well. Sisters, let me encourage you to, to give yourself to this good work 
of teaching and training up and encouraging. So Timothy, he's prepared for service in large part due to his mom and her faithfulness in raising him. But notice also Timothy's sacrifice. This is a sacrifice for the sake of the mission. And here we, you know, we might think, wait a minute, I thought circumcision wasn't required. And it's not. It's not required. Timothy doesn't have to be circumcised. And in fact, if he objected to Paul and said, Paul, I'm not under that law anymore, Paul would have had to relent. But Paul and Timothy both see and understand and believe with great certainty that being circumcised, undergoing that knife for the sake of the Jews and, and kind of removing a barrier to them and their hearing of the gospel, Timothy is willing to do. You probably know that um, Paul refused to circumcise Titus in another circumstance. And that was because in that situation, the, the gospel was being threatened. They, they were saying, you, you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And in that circumstance, Paul said, no, just to make it clear that that doesn't have to happen, I'm not going to circumcise Titus. And Paul's kind of missionary principle in this regard is being all things to all men. Right? In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul announces this. He says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So, I mean, an application for us, right, is what, what barrier should we seek to remove with our, our unbelieving friends and family members? I mean, maybe you go out, with an go out for dinner with an unbelieving coworker, and you know that they're a recovering alcoholic. Well, don't order a beer. That, that will create difficulty in your conversation, right? They're tempting them in that way. Or perhaps you have your, your Muslim neighbors over to your home. Don't serve pork for dinner. It's a terrible idea. And it will probably actually be helpful if you don't have any pork in your home. That might make them feel more comfortable to being over in your home and hearing you talk about your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think through what relationships you have and maybe what barriers you can remove to make sure that you get a clear hearing of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to draw another application from this text. I want to say to the young men in our congregation, be Timothy. Be like Timothy. Be a disciple. I mean this from children all the way up to uh, young men who perhaps are not yet married or who are, are freshly married. Brothers, let me encourage you to be like Timothy. A disciple is a student and learner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is the time in your life, whether or not you believe it, this is the time in your life when you have the most time in your life. So you should be reading good Christian books. You should basically try to read through every book on that book nook if you can. Uh, this is when a period of time your theology is going to be formed. You should be haranguing an elder or a godly Christian man saying, what book should I be reading? What subject should I be devoting my time to and learning about the Lord Jesus Christ? Make us have you over to our homes for dinner. Say, hey, I'm available on Thursday night. Are you, are you free for me to come to your home and have dinner? Just like press yourself into our lives in that way. You, you need to be a student and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself to learning about him. Be well spoken of. Be, be fat, as the navigators like to say. Be faithful, available, and teachable. Be fat. Be faithful. Turn up to things regularly and on time. Be available. Somebody needs help to move a pile of dirt or to move uh, furniture in their house. Be available to help them do that. And be teachable. Seek to be taught by another brother in the Lord and to walk and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a congregation, we need to pray for Timothy's. We need to pray that the Lord would raise up Timothy's from our children, or from our young men. And we need to be praying that we would be willing and ready to sacrifice. I mean, young men, maybe there are some sacrifices you need to make. 
Maybe some of you need to not stay here in comfortable America and you need to go somewhere for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim him where he's not known. Maybe we need to make that sacrifice in some way. So brothers and sisters, let's pray that the Lord would raise up Timothy's, that he would give us a sacrificial heart, all because we know what we have in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice finally, there in verses 4 and 5, that Paul and Timothy, they, they preach the good news. They were strengthened in the faith. This is how churches are strengthened. Churches are strengthened by the simple and saving proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we give ourselves to week in and week out. This is how sinners are saved. This is how disciples are sanctified by the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of ministry that we are trying to pursue as a church. Right? We're trying to teach God's word faithfully week in, week out. We're trying to hand down the apostolic preaching of the gospel. It's one of the reasons I'm preaching through uh, the Apostles' Creed every once in a while. We'll pause this series. We'll think about doctrine. The apostles taught from God's word. So this is the kind of ministry, a ministry that comes from the word. It's connected to the apostolic teaching of the gospel that God uses to strengthen faith and to bring more to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we should conclude. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is working in everything. And his work ought to encourage us to persevere, to keep going on. If the show must go on, even more so the mission must go on. We have a much greater declaration to make about Christ's saving power. So the Lord is working. He's working even through debate to encourage sanctification and sensitivity. He's working through division to cause us to persevere in making Christ known, Christ known and sometimes multiplying the mission work. And He's working through our dedication to His mission to strengthen the church and to save His people. Brothers and sisters, make Christ known this week. Persevere in that good work. Tell somebody who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior that He is mighty to save. Let's press on. Let's pursue. Let's prepare. Let's sacrifice all for the glory of Christ's name. And now let's pray together. Would you join me in prayer?